Iawatha. If you came in late, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we are, as you just heard, preaching-wise, uh, in the middle of the Gospel of John. So, uh, like Waldine invited us, if you want to turn in a Bible to John chapter 7 or a phone app, please do that. But uh, we'll have some slides here to help us along. Um, but we, uh, kind of picking up from last week, if you are uh, just joining or missed a week or two, uh, we're in the middle of chapter 7, uh, continuing on with uh, what could be called the, the Feast of Booths uh, discourse. Jesus is still at one of these kind of principal feasts of the Jews, one of the big three. There are several, but one of the ones that, that's asked the Jews to pilgrimage essentially into the city. So think of like the Minnesota State Fair is happening uh, with probably less pork hot dogs, but you know, um, pretty much the same thing. Uh, that type of crowd is there, and um, Jesus has just got done, gotten done saying some difficult things. Uh, he's been doing this, of course. If you know even a little bit about Jesus, you know he's the epitome of love, but also doesn't like um, kind of hold punches in terms of like some of the difficult uh, teachings that he has for us as human beings to understand about our, ourselves, our true nature, and about God. And so he's just gotten done earlier in chapter 7 saying things like, uh, your works are evil, uh, which of course was hard for them to hear, it would be for anybody, but especially considering though that works weren't just bad things, but good things done for selfish gain or some kind of spiritual benefit. Um, to hear it on that level would add a layer, right? Like a layer of offense and difficulty. Uh, I was listening to someone else this past week uh, put it this way, that Jesus had uh, a habit of punching harder to the right than to the left. Uh, meaning, it was the conservative, the good, the moral, and the religious who often had the hardest, the, the hardest time with him because he wasn't that impressed with them. He wasn't that impressed with their piety. He wasn't, um, you know, flattering of them. And he, even more than that, he presented an altogether different way of salvation than the old commandments and laws did, namely himself. And, and so again, he's been saying to people with a high view of themselves, even the good you're doing is keeping you away from God. And when you hear it on that level, it's no wonder they wanted to kill him, right? And so today we jump right back in uh, to the story, same context. Uh, the feast is continuing, and uh, I think there are three big themes that arise in today's section that help us understand the gospel a little bit better. And I'll just say what they are uh, for kind of get your bearings here, but the three themes are division, how Jesus divides, uh, knowledge or lack thereof, uh, and then the theme of impossibility. And so they're kind of vague, maybe at this point we'll get to them. We'll also talk a bit about the feast itself uh, later on thematically and, and how Jesus fulfills it. And also this just kind of woven, woven and strewn throughout these uh, <clears throat> kind of high, simple, but very high and heavenly um, teachings and sayings that Jesus has. Things like, you know me, but you don't know him. Uh, you know me, but you don't know God. And uh, we'll talk about that. So the first, though, is uh, division. Uh, so just, uh, again, uh, the crowd uh, still stands divided with him, right? This is what we're seeing in the gospel. <clears throat> if you're just joining, this is not a new theme, but uh, chapter 7 exemplifies this idea. Some people are debating about him. Some are seeking uh, to arrest him. And some are just kind of confused. They're totally confounded. And then there are some who are believing, uh, at, at the same time. But, but all of that is part of the point visually. The, the point being Jesus demands a response. He, he, um, he, call, he kind of cuts like a knife sometimes uh, in between different types of people. Um, but there are only so many things we can, we can ultimately do with him. Uh, last week, Spencer 
preached and quoted C.S. Lewis's famous liar, lunatic lord argument, uh, if you were here for that. Others have said similar things like, we can either crown him or crucify him, but we can't relegate him to the happy middle. Like his teachings don't allow for that. The way he carries himself in public, what he says about us, uh, the sharpness sometimes of what he says, uh, the, but the exclusivity about what he says about himself and the way to God. It just doesn't allow for this kind of relegation to the happy middle. We can either crucify him or crown him. But all that aside, um, I love that he's just here uh, amidst this type of crowd. These are easy things to miss when you read the Bible sometimes, but just kind of step back and just see, look at the type of people he's interacting with, uh, some of whom, again, are just confused uh, by him. But that's important because the fact that he's close to those who have questions about him, and yet he doesn't answer all of their questions outright, tells us that sometimes he is found outside of our questions rather than inside of them. Uh, In other words, or to put it a different way, the gospel is not we get to understand everything, nor is it we have to understand everything. The gospel is Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom we are the foremost, to quote Paul. Uh, and th- those things are very different, though, right? That this is why I think in um, 1 Corinthians 1.21, this is a small excerpt of a greater argument. I encourage you to go and read the whole chapter. But um, the Apostle Paul says to a church in Corinth that the gospel is foolishness to the world. Like, uh, we have to come to terms with that. Like, God is not operating on our intellectual levels. He's not saying, I'm coming to, to your level of intellect uh, being very high, and I'm going to speak to you on those terms. He's saying, I'm presenting something to you that is foolishness, and you accept me on the basis of worldly foolishness, not on high intellectualism. So, like in verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In other words, again, it's not through intellectual assent. This is not an anti-intellectual statement, but it's, it's also saying it's not through intellectual assent that we know God. It's not through our wisdom that we found him. It's not through our intellectual assent that all of a sudden, aha, there he is. But instead, it's through his descent in Jesus that we know him. We know, God, we know God through his coming down, coming down to us, to the bottom of the ladder, the bottom of the mountain, and even further down. That's how far we were away from us, how low we were to become like us in order to save, save us. And, and that, the reality is that confounds earthly philosophy, and it confounds even our moral prowess. Uh, David Clay puts it this way. He says, God hides himself so that we can never take credit for having figured him out. He hides himself so we can never take credit for having figured him out. He reveals himself only in ways that destroy our pride. It's very true. And this is probably what's going on in not just 1 Corinthians 1, but John 7 and elsewhere. Um, This is partly why God is, he's not ultimately a hider in Jesus, he's a revealer. But this is why statements like you don't know God, and we don't know him through our ability and our wisdom and our moral prowess becomes so important because they're so gospel-related. So we don't know him through our wisdom or our works, but he comes to us separate from them, even on a cross, and we receive him unblended and undiluted, a savior unto himself, period. And we open up our hands to him saying, I'm not saved by having all the answers, 
but by receiving Jesus as the only capital A answer I need. That, that's, that's what we have to sort of come to terms with uh, on our path or on our journey uh, to, to finding God and to realizing that we're actually not finding him, but he's finding us. All right? We also see that Jesus in this crowd is close to his enemies. So he's close to people who have questions and who are just confused about him. He's also close to people who are literally trying to arrest him, which is fascinating. I mean, what a dinner party this must have been, right? Uh, But this reminds us that his gospel that he's about to inaugurate will be one of enemy love, not a reward system for the righteous. This made me think of how often uh, in the Old Testament, King David said things like, uh, where are one of my enemies so I can show kindness to them? Uh, One place you see this in 2 Samuel 9, um, the king is like, he literally couldn't wait to show kindness and grace to those who wanted to kill him. Uh, Whether it be um, one of his own family that were starting to coup against him, or in this case, the grandson of his arch enemy, Saul. Uh, Where's someone who hates me that I can be nice to them? It's like, we don't think this way. Right? And it's, it's just almost like um, it's superhuman. It, it's outside of us. And it's not a con- but what the point here is that it's not a concept, it's a reality here in history that Jesus culminates. He, 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 he completes this idea. Because Jesus is David's descendant. Jesus is known as the son of David for a reason. Because when you read stuff like this in the Old Testament, you should think of how they anticipate him. They're ultimately about him. Jesus would be like this as well. He would be someone who would come and he would do things that we can't. He would love enemies. Uh, again, this, I, I think this is something that human beings, Christian or not, I mean, without a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have literally no chance of doing this well ourselves. We're, we're actually, I, I would say, opposed to it. Uh, it's, it's, it it's impossible Uh, But God is able to do the impossible. He's able, he's willing, and we get get a glimpse of that here. The Son of God in the flesh, literally bumping shoulders uh, with those who want him dead, and yet those people are not being consumed or crushed. Like, how? You know, it's just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't even compute. And yet it gives you a hint that maybe God is here to save people like that, people that are that bad, people like me people like us, people that, that much against the things of the Spirit, that, that much against the things of light, that much against God himself. All right? So that's the first thing is to see the division, uh, the call to do something with him, but also the types of people that are being divided at this point, even the ones who are being divided away from him. Uh, all is not lost necessarily. Uh, God is able to save the worst of people, even people like us. Okay, the next category is knowledge uh, or, or lack thereof. Let me reread verses 28 to 30. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own, of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Okay, so I, I think that in this passage, it goes outside of this too, but here there is a human and divine element to this that's important to see because in a lot of ways, uh, you might not be able to sense it immediately, or maybe you do, 
But in a lot of ways, passages like this get at the core of the Christian faith. Like, this is it. And so, by that I mean some in the crowds are saying, um, we, we know where Jesus comes from, we know where he grew up, we know his parents, uh, but we're pretty sure we're not supposed to know where the Christ comes from. Yet it's hard for us to deny that he is the Christ based on all the miracles he's doing. And so you can kind of understand their, their confusion, maybe even their flow of logic here. But Jesus' response is essentially, yes, you know me and where I come from, but you don't know the one who sent me. You don't know God. You know me, but you don't know the Father. And so, again, the reason why this is so important is because, and I think I mentioned this in a previous sermon, is how in Christianity, and as we look at the whole story of redemption in the Bible, God is never known apart from a mediator. God is never known apart from him putting something in between him and sinners. He's never known apart from that, ever. In the Old Testament, it was primarily law, which consisted of a priesthood and uh, temple worship and animal sacrifices and things like that. But in the New Testament, all those things are replaced by Jesus, their divinely appointed successor. And and so, so now the point is, we cannot know God apart from Jesus. You cannot know God apart from Jesus. It's impossible. This is, this is at least what Jesus himself is saying. You don't know him. These are people that think they do. These are the, the pastors of the day. These are the religious elite of the day, the quote-unquote good people of the day, whatever that means. You don't know him, but you know me. So do you see how, like, how that's starting to, to kind of uh, encapsulate the core message of, of Christianity? It's like we cannot access him, we cannot know him apart from from Christ. Uh, and they don't, they don't have a category yet for the incarnation, how God became a man, nor did they understand the gospel yet. That would be a little bit anachronistic, and so we have that in play here. But here's what we are learning. Jesus was a human being, just like us. The, the crowds are like, I know that guy. Like, I know his dad. Um, I, I know, where, I know he, what he used to do as a profession. Uh, is, he's the carpenter's son. All, all, he grew up in Nazareth. All these things. And they listed off all these things. But the point is, he's normal. He's just like you. He's just like me. He's, he's human. And the crowds knew him in his humanity like they did a neighbor right down the street. That's what's happening here. And, and you know, again, I think I mentioned this before too about myself. Like, I tend to, to view Jesus more, as divine, more divine than human. I don't know if you guys flip that or if you have a, have a good balance there. That's great. Obviously, strive for the both end. But... Um, but like, I guess on a bad day or whatever, I don't know. When I'm reading my Bible, I'm like, I, I lean divine. But Jesus, this is just saying Jesus is as normal as your next door neighbor. That, that, that's, that's what this is saying. And they don't have a category for how that could be God. Like how that person could actually be the son of God. Because they don't have a category for these high ideas of God becoming, taking on flesh. And like we talked about in, in chapter 1. But if there is like kind of a maxim to this, I think it would be this. In Jesus, God became normal uh, so that he might die for the normal and so that the normal might know God. That's Christianity. And that's what this is saying. This this Bible passage is getting at is you know me. You don't know God, but you know me, and and I've been sent here by God. So when you know me, you know him. God came our way. Do you see that? 
He came, it's, it's monodirectional. He came to us, our way, so we might be saved. Becoming like us in order to save us so that you don't have to become like him. Christianity is not you become like God. It's he became like you to save you. So rest easy and believe. And so the crowds then are starting, maybe kind of coming to terms with this a little bit, maybe not right here, but we know later they do. But that's what this is saying. That the fact that Jesus didn't come to teach people how to know God as if it were somehow attainable apart from him says everything we need to know about Christianity. Again, you can't know God apart from Jesus. You can't see him apart from Jesus. You can't understand him apart from Jesus. You can't please him apart from Jesus. Instead, God made himself knowable and salvation attainable through the incarnation and eventual crucifixion of the Son of, of, the Son of God. Full stop. Full stop. Like, that's it. That, that is how we are saved, how we know him, how we see him with our eyes, how we understand his characteristics. He says elsewhere, when you see me, you see the Father. I mean, these are things, again, this is why the crowds hated him, why they wanted to kill him, that they considered a blasphemy, of course. But this is a human being like us is saying this, who's also the Son of God. And he's saying, like, this is how, this is how you are reconciled. This is how you have peace. This is how you are saved from your truest of enemies, by receiving me, the sent one, the, the, the peace offering, the love letter into your life. All right? Then this last theme is uh, the theme of impossibility. Similar ideas, but let me just read verses 31, or sorry, 33 and 34 again. <clears throat> he then says, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going back to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So those of you who know um, elsewhere in Matthew where Jesus says, seek and you will find, well, here he says, when you seek me, you won't find me. So this is, is biblical theology fun? You know, it's like so confusing sometimes, like, well, which is it, right? Um, but this is why it's important to understand the story and understand these different, I think these are, those are different things. I'm not going to go into that in, for time's sake today, but um, you probably, some of you probably thought of that. So just acknowledge that, yes, when you see God, you'll find him. But in another sense, no one seeks after him. You just can't, truly. We, we need him to seek us first and, and foremost, all right? So I'll come back to some of that. But in terms of what's happening here, with the first verse especially, um, may or may not be clear, but Jesus is talking about his impending death, his crucifixion, when he says, I'm going to leave you. Like right now I'm here, but I'm going to leave, I'm, leaving, I'm going to die, and I'm going to, to go back to him, uh, to God, who, who sent me. And the crowds are misunderstanding, and they're like, well, where's he going to go? He's going to go to the dispersion. Uh, it, it, they're speak, like, thinking that he's speaking geographically, but as is often the case, he means something deeper with his words and what people think. But, but the point is the same as the previous section, and that is, we are limited. That's the point. We're limited. Before he said we can't know God, now he's saying we can't go where he's going. We can't, we can't, we can't. It's not exactly a motivational speech, is it? And maybe that's the point. Uh, you and I hear, you can, you can, you can do it 10,000 times a day. 
We hear it when we're lying in a crib at that age. Uh, it is the mantra of our culture and our world. And yet, uh, Jesus' teachings have a different flair to them. Uh, he says, much more often you can't uh, than you can. Uh, but it's not an insult. It's actually where the good life is. Uh, we can't go up. So at the mercy of him coming down, we're called to gaze, not to mimic. I was thinking recently about how um, sometimes the, the best things in life are things we look at without any lesson attached to it. Uh, without any, now it's your turn, thrown in uh, at, at the end. Um, if we were to go to an art museum, <clears throat> this is actually uh, one of my daughter Jane's and my favorite paintings at the MIA. Maybe some of you have seen it. But if we went to an art museum and stared at a painting like this for two seconds and then said, okay, and then sprinted to our cars to go home in order to try and recreate it in our basement, we'd be missing the point. Uh, going to an art museum carries no weight other than to enjoy it. There's no call to mimic what we see, no lesson of any kind, just one way gazing at another person's work. We're looking at what someone else did, and we're saying, wow, look at the color. Like, wow, look at the contrast. Look at the balance in this piece. It could be something else, too, if you're not into art. It could be something else as well. Uh, but looking at, the, looking at someone else's work, you go to the Grand Canyon, it's the same thing. Like, how silly would it be to run home and say, well, now I've got to recreate this thing in my backyard, you know? as we make little finger marks in the mud, you know, how, patheti how pathetic, right? Um, it's the same thing. Uh, it could be a sporting event even. Um, but the, the, sometimes, again, there's, there's also, um, th there are times for that maybe, but the best things in life, I think, sometimes are to look at things without an immediate lesson, uh, attached just to enjoy. Um, and, and that is what Christianity, this is the good news, this is what Christianity is ultimately about. It is about, Understanding we can't, and so we gaze. Understanding we can't go where Jesus is going. We can't die for our own sins. We can't die for the sins of the world. We can't ascend to God. He's not asking us to. He's saying, receive me. Let me bump shoulders with you, my enemy. Let me fulfill Psalm 23 by having dinner with my enemies. You're the enemies, and I'm the David. Isn't that good news? That's actually what Psalm 23 is all about. Now, you're, you're the enemies in that psalm. You're not the one having dinner, throwing the party as if you're the great one. See, Jesus bled for his enemies. God bled for you. That's the gospel. And that's not a call to be, God isn't saying, now bleed for me, like other religions. Show me your worth. Show me your commitment. Show me you mean it. It's not the amount of your contrition that God is looking for, as if that's what maintains your faith. It's not the amount of contrition. It's that you believe in him, you, you turn his way, and you believe he's turned you. You receive him into your life every day. And it's, it's interesting that all this is happening as well at the Feast of Booths. So I mentioned this a little bit. Spencer uh, talked about this last week as well, um, so I won't go into all this again. But the feast, remember, is uh, it's a big deal for the Jews. But it's interesting that all these things I've been talking about here are happening at this moment, and there's a reason for that. Uh, this is not an accident. This is not just history. This is theology. Uh, because according to the Old Testament, 
uh, during the feast, the, the Jews were to do, quote, no ordinary work. Or no, it's kind of like a Sabbath idea. They, they weren't to work. It was, it was sin to work during the party. It's kind of like, um, you know, God, God looked at a wedding and said, yeah, the guy who's over there in the corner acting like it's a funeral, like this is not okay. Like you should be happy that a wedding's going on or something like that. Like we can't, we can't flip the wedding funeral idea. Um, but God is saying here, don't you dare work. Um, this is a party. Um, so part of the feast then, like for most feasts, there was a Sabbath, a rest element uh, to them, booze again being no exception. So, so God said this. And this is all, you know, sort of the, the, the umbrella, almost like an umbrella law over the festival. And now, but here's the point. Now Jesus is here as the fulfillment of the festival. The festival existed for his sake. And, and the reason why that's important is because he's stopped, at this festival with these teachings, he's stopping people in their religious tracks as he inaugurates the true Sabbath rest of our souls. Namely, salvation from sin, which is sinful to try and add to with our good works. And then in verse 40, skipping down, it says, and back in the Old Testament, on the first day you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord, your God, for seven days, which is uh, also interesting, I think, in that booths, or this feast, this festival of booths, commemorated the exodus, which was deliverance from Egyptian slavery. Uh, It also commemorated rest, hence the no work command. And so its association with trees makes a lot of sense because the ultimate and final version of the feast would be associated with the cross, the ultimate leafy tree, where rest and deliverance and celebration occur at the highest level. Uh, So in a way, um, like you guys probably have never wrestled with, well, should I keep the Feast of Booths or not? Like you, you, you sort of naturally probably segmented that off as something that's passed, as you should. But here's the thing. Um, the Bible sometimes says these are like eternal, it, eternal things. And so like in, in one sense, does the, does the festival kind of continue? And I would say it kind of does. Like whenever we as Christians um, wave the cross around by faith, when we centralize the cross, the ultimate the, the tree of life, the ultimate leafy tree, kind of like uh, Aaron's staff budded. Remember that? that? Which is a picture of uh, life coming from death. It was a cross image as well in the Old Testament. But with this festival... When we meet as a church, when we talk about Jesus and sing about him and and take communion, when we wave the cross around as the foolishness, this foolishness of of preaching, we're saying God bled. We're saying we can't go up. It's not motivational speech. It's demotivational, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, But when we talk about that, we, by faith, keep the festival going, kind of, just in different terms. Just like the Sabbath kind of keeps going, but we don't keep... we don't have to, shouldn't, I would say, keep a Sabbath day. That, that law is passed and gone. Jesus breaks it here, actually, for a reason in John 5. But in one sense, we kind of keep, do keep the Sabbath by resting in Christ spiritually every day. It's the same thing here with the festival. When we don't trust in our works, when we do no ordinary work, spiritually speaking, we trust in his. By faith, we, we celebrate our deliverance from slavery to sin, not to Egypt, but our slavery to sin, we keep, uh, we keep the, the festival going uh, just in, in the way it was meant to be completed or abrogated or fulfilled or wrapped up or changed 
exemplified but changed in Jesus. And so in, in John 7, 31, then when it says, the, the crowds are like, well, when the Christ appears, they're still trying to figure it out. Will he do more signs than this man has done? So, so they're thinking, uh, how could more be done than what this man has done? And, you know, the response, of course, is, well, yes. And they don't understand he's the Christ, but, well, yes, he will. He will do another sign. He will do a greater sign. The sign of his bloody death. And the sign that God loves us this much. Uh, This is the ultimate place you and I can't go. When when Jesus says in verse 34, you you can't go where I'm going. It's not just ascension, though it's the same idea. You can't go here. You're not being asked to. That's the gospel. God isn't asking you to go with Jesus to the cross. You can't atone for your own sins or others. So um, to quote Leviticus 23, so do no ordinary work. Instead, watch, gaze, rest, and believe. And uh, to go back then to to some of Jesus' language, I, I think this is ultimately then where we say we can't know God apart from this. You, I, nobody can truly know God apart from what he did. This is what Jesus is saying. Like, you can't know God, but you know me. You can't know the Father, so stop thinking you can. But you can know me, and when you know me, you know him because he sent me. And I'm him. I'm his son. I've become just like you. I've, I've spoken your language even. So there's no barriers but God is hidden to destroy your pride. God, but, but he reveals through Jesus also to destroy our pride because when he reveals in Jesus, he reveals himself there, which is nothing you've ever done has been enough to get you to God because this was necessary. No good you've ever done has ever been even close to enough because this was necessary. See how beautiful and offensive that is, how consoling that is for sinners but offensive to people who think they're pretty good. And so it's, it's a wrench in the gears. It, it's a stick in the pegs of the wheel of the bike. It, it, it's a root lifted on the cross-country track. It, it's, it's, it's meant to trip us up and stop us. So we'd, come, we'd resign ourselves to we can't know God apart from him. We can't please him apart from Jesus and, and faith. In fact, we don't know him at all, but we know Christ. This is the point. We know him here. And when we know Jesus on the cross, we truly, wholly, um, satisfactorily, sufficiently know God. We know who he's, what he's like and, and who he really is. And that's the call to faith. Jesus is starting. We're going to see it next week. The feast is going to continue one more week in the feast, but he's He's setting the stage for, for this. He's speaking in terms that's going to make this all the more clear. It's pointing ahead. John 7, it's not this island. The feast is not an island, but it's a point ahead to when we would truly come to understand that God is the most loving, the most generous, the kindest being in the universe. And if he wasn't a speck of that, this, this wouldn't happen. But he's all of those at the, on much bigger levels than any of you and I know. This is what he's like. Believe, trust, receive. Let me pray. Father, thank you for 
this passage. Thank you for uh, your beautifully complex um, and yet through Christ understandable word. Uh, this, in a lot of ways, John 7 began way back in Leviticus 23. It was foreseen. Um, but God, we thank you for being our rest. We thank you for being our ultimate festival. Thank you for being the bread, the, the, the booth, the one who shelters us from the storm, uh, the sign of deliverance from our slavery to sin. Uh, the, the, the ultimate slavery is inside of us, not outside. The greatest problem we have is our evil in our hearts, not anything in the world that seems to threaten us. Though those may be types of threats as well, they pale in comparison to our sin. Thank you for leading us out of that Egypt, though. Thank you for um, teaching in these ways to remind us that you bump shoulders with your enemies. You don't crush them. You talk to them. Like David, you you seek to show kindness and patience to them, people like us. Thank you for all that and more, God. We pray that you would lead us as a people uh, to green pastures this week. Uh, Lead us like sheep. Uh, Sheep don't really do a lot for the shepherd. They don't work really hard to make life easy for the shepherd. Um, They rest a lot. They're protected a lot. They're guided a lot. They're fed a lot. So I I pray that you would, um, at least in a very large sense, uh, help us understand our identities in those terms, that we truly are loved and fought for. Um, even by a shepherd who lays, him, who, who lays his life down for the sheep. It's John 10 gets at. So. Um, God, help us to sing, to respond, to be thankful, uh, celebratory uh, for who you are and, and what you've done and to gaze today uh, with as much strength and zeal and genuineness as your spirit provides uh, in this room and throughout this week. In Christ we pray, amen.